Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Germany fears economic collapse as Russia has suspended the flow of gas through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline due to planned maintenance. Also, Russia has cut the flow of gas to Italy by a third due to maintenance issues, and the EU has no plan for economic existence without cheap Russian energy. Joining us to discuss this, we have Dr. Gerald Horn. He's a professor of history at the University of Houston, Texas, an author, historian, and researcher. Dr. Horn, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for inviting me. The flow of Russian gas to Germany through the Nord Stream 1 Baltic Sea pipeline was suspended on Monday. Operator Nord Stream AG said that routine maintenance work would shut down the infrastructure for 10 days. Energy major Eni announced on Monday that Russia's Gazprom had further reduced the supply of natural gas to Italy as scheduled maintenance work begins on the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. Gazprom announced that today it will supply the Eni volumes of gas of approximately 21 million cubic meters per day, while the average for the last few days was of about 32 million cubic meters per day. Dr. Horn, sounds like there's trouble in uh, in uh, gas land for the EU. Your thoughts, sir? Well, that certainly seems to be the case. And I think if we try to look at this matter from 30,000 feet, it's obvious that many Western European nations are in a crunch right now. Because on the one hand, these sub-imperialist nations like German imperialism, Italian imperialism, they have to rely upon the big dog, U.S. imperialism, as the ultimate guarantor of world imperialism. The problem with that approach is that U.S. imperialism is a bellicose, belligerent, militaristic nation that over the decades has managed to repress and suppress radicalism domestically, which has simultaneously strengthened the right wing and the hawks, which then causes ever more disasters and catastrophes, such as Iraq, Afghanistan, the list is too lengthy to mention. And Germany has a particular problem because U.S. imperialism, as a result of the post-World War II dispensation, continues to operate military bases on German soil, not to mention the fact that there are many, particularly within the German elite, which is thankful to Uncle Sam for pressing 30-odd years ago for the liquidation of the then German Democratic Republic, speaking of what was once socialist Germany, and its incorporation into the capitalist Federal Republic of Germany. And that, too, constricts Berlin's ability to protest these escapades, such as the one in Ukraine, which, of course, was preceded by the existence of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which by all measures should have gone out of business after the collapse of the Soviet Union, but instead motored on and found other messes to get involved in. And then there's the domestic German issue, which is that the Greens, which are in coalition with Chancellor Schultz's uh, Social Democrats, supposedly or purportedly, uh, they seem to feel 
that in order to gain traction with the German elite, uh, they have to appear to be hawkish. And so they have pressed perhaps even more than some of the Social Democrats on arming the Kiev regime and deepening this quagmire uh, in Ukraine. And that makes it even more curious in the, in the uh, face of the reality we noticed a few days ago, uh, where the Greens apparently acquiesced to this idea that uh, there should be a reestablishing of nuclear power in Germany and treating certain fossil fuels as being part of a green energy solution. Uh, this is the pretzel into which the Greens have tied themselves in order to go along, ultimately, uh, with U.S. imperialism. But a interesting note was sounded just a few days ago in London by U.S. FBI Director Christopher Wray, who appeared alongside his British counterpart, and they took the opportunity uh, on the occasion of this extraordinary meeting of this toxic duo that China should not be forgotten. They issued an entire litany of charges and allegations about the People's Republic of China. But all that served to illustrate is this lingering question, if China is so important, why is so much attention being given to Ukraine and Russia? This also came up a few days ago, or in the last 24 to 48 hours, at the G20 foreign ministers meeting in Indonesia, where you saw that the so-called G7, led by the United States and the leading capitalist countries, uh, aided by Japan and, of course, a titular member of South Korea, uh, sought to boycott uh, Russia and Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, and the other members did not go along because they're not endorsing the sanctions crusade. And what was really revealing about uh, Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, his exposition was it was ultimately ludicrous because what he was telling the Chinese foreign minister is this. Could you please join us in confronting Russia so we can confront China more effectively. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Basically, why should China uh, join Washington in confronting Russia when all that will do is hasten the day when U.S. imperialism can focus like a laser beam on China? Uh, this is the contradiction. Uh, this is the trap in which U.S. imperialism has stumbled. And as of today, there seems to be no way out. In terms of stumbling, in terms of referencing the trap, this whole issue around Russia suspending operation of major gas to Europe, the story in these stories is this was pre, this was a pre-planned stoppage, that the situation was well flagged and had previously been agreed to by all of the partners. And also, it talks about, in terms of the, the, the cut back of oil to Italy, that if Russia decides to cut back the gas deliveries altogether, Italy will find itself in a recession. 
So it just appears that time after time after time, the United States trying to implement or employ its hegemony, it just continues to shoot itself and its allies in the feet. Well, that is for sure. And I think we should also mention the point that with regard to this meeting in Indonesia, which included uh, such heavyweights as leaders from Saudi Arabia and South Africa, Indonesia, and all the rest, Turkey as well, that those representatives there of the global south not only do not necessarily fear the North Atlantic hegemons, because they see the North Atlantic hegemons are bogged down in Ukraine. Uh, There are credible stories about the North Atlantic countries actually running out of ammunition as they seek to supply the Ukrainians. But as well, there is a credible alternative in the form of the BRICS nations led by China, uh, which can, as we've noted on these airways before, uh, can build a new capital for Zimbabwe on the outskirts of the present capital. Harare can build a light rail system for Cairo as it seeks to construct a new capital on the outskirts of that Egyptian metropolis. And we see that Argentina and Iran, among other nations, are making applications to join the BRICS. But at the same time, uh, let me point listeners to a striking book review yesterday in the New York Times about, of all matters, uh, hogs in North Carolina, uh, operated by Smithfield, which is ultimately controlled by Chinese interests. And what's interesting is that these hog factories create more waste than that created by humans in New York City. And yet there's no treatment. It's unleashed into the atmosphere and into the ground. And China does not allow such on its soil because of stricter environmental laws. And the takeaway ultimately from such a piece is that increasingly the United States is in a rather strange relationship with China. It's almost like the United States is a neocolonial appendage, which exports raw materials uh, to China and allows its territory to be despoiled by China, just like Britain despoiled the territory of so many African nations in the bad old days. And in return, the United States receives finished goods, laptops, uh, color televisions, and all the rest. And so not only is a person like myself able to see this contradiction, uh, this can also be seen in the global south, and they're beginning to wonder if the global north, so-called, really knows what they're doing, something that had occurred in 2008 with the financial collapse on Wall Street, but that particular perception is gaining velocity, I'm afraid to say, with every passing day. 
Dr. Horn, I did want to ask you this. With, what, with what's happening in Sri Lanka, I look at that. I look at what's going on with the tractors and the farmers, I believe, in Holland. And I think to myself, uh, that may be the fate of Europe. And looking at, you know, the issues they're having with gas, they're wondering, will the gas actually come on at the end of the t- at the end of these um, of the 10 days? Your thoughts on, you know, is there a possibility that at some point someone will be swimming in Olaf Scholz, Scholz's uh, 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 presidential pool before this thing's all over with? Well, I think we should take seriously your reference to what's taking place in Colombo and Sri Lanka where the president and prime minister are in hiding as protesters have overrun the presidential palace and the prime minister's residence. I dare say not only is Olaf Scholz uh, contemplating that that might be his fate, but as Mr. Biden heads east to Saudi Arabia and Israel, the thought may have occurred to him as well, uh, particularly in light of the impending January 6th hearings uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, That is to say that Mr. Biden is going to Saudi Arabia, hat in hand, uh, begging the Saudis to break their oil relationship with Russia, which is dubious, is doubtful, and asking for the Saudis to somehow lower the price of gasoline at the pump so that inflation will go down in the United States and that Mr. Biden's party, the Democrats, might face more favorable electoral prospects. Uh, He's actually asking the Saudis to leave cash on the table for his benefit. And in light of how Mr. Biden was excoriating the Saudi regime when he was running for president, it's doubtful if that will occur. And as for NATO, the NATO countries, much has been made of this notion that Finland and Sweden will be joining the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. But if you look at the small print, you will quickly notice that they will have to deport a Kurdish nationals from Finland and Sweden that the Turkish regime has demanded. And that will put them in a corner because I doubt if they will comply, which will wreck the possibility of them joining NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And so with regard to NATO and its ultimate honcho in Washington, D.C., the bad news just keeps on coming. We've been talking with Dr. Gerald Horn. He's a professor of history at the University of Houston, Texas. He's an author, a historian, and a researcher. He's got a number of books. Just go online anywhere you can find books, and there's a lot of great books um, out by Dr. Gerald Horn. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The BA5 COVID variant is spreading, and the risk of reinfection is growing. Also, some Congress members are demanding action from President Biden due to the Roe v. Wade SCOTUS ruling, and Medicare could save hundreds of billions of dollars by negotiating drug prices. Joining us to discuss this, we have Dr. Yolanda Hancock. She's a board-certified pediatrician and obesity medicine specialist. Dr. Hancock, welcome back to The Critical Hour. 
Thank you so much for having me. Um, I feel like every time we talk to you, we're saying this with a new one. The latest Omicron offshoot, BA5, has quickly become dominant in the United States and thanks to its elusiveness when encountering the human immune system is driving a wave of cases across the country. Dr. Hancock, what do we need to know about BA5? So what we need to know about BA5 outside of it being the dominant variant is that both it and its brother and its sibling, we'll say its sibling, are more infectious than any of the previous variants that we have had to date. What that means is that there will be more people infected simply because the virus is associated with a higher level of viral load. The other thing that's really important with these two variants is that with the mutation that's on the protein, it actually can escape our current immune protection. Meaning, if you had Omicron, Delta, Alpha, any of the previous COVID-19 uh, variants or subvariants, you are at risk of developing this infection, even in the face of immunization, because as we know, the immunization uh, was designed to trigger an immune response to original COVID-19, which is why the FDA is uh, really looking hard at creating or asking both Pfizer and Moderna to create vaccines that have the BA.4, BA.5 component. And so as we talk about a higher infection rate, when we talk about it being more transmissible, why aren't we hearing more about it? I think part of it is uh, risk perception. I believe that people do not see the perceived risk, and that's both in the lay public as well as in most spaces, in the policy space, in, in just general public spaces. We don't see it as threatening, one, because that's the narrative, that this is a milder, milder gentler version of COVID that's not causing as severe of an infection. Right now, we do not know whether that BA.4 or BA.5 cause more severe symptoms, but based on what we saw coming out of South Africa, where they had 98% of their population is estimated to have antibodies to COVID, whether it be due to vaccination or infection, they saw significant increase in cases and a small rise in their hospitalizations. And so based on what happened in South Africa, it's anticipated that we won't see a very severe presentation of COVID, just large numbers. And anytime you increase the number of people who are infected with COVID, you're going to increase the number of people who end up hospitalized simply because of masks. And uh, what do we know? Do you know much about the symptoms? Are they pretty much the same? Is there any way to tell about the symptoms? You know, I'm noticing now, I know there is a, there's some kind of a wave because I'm noticing various friends and family say, yeah, I know so-and-so had COVID or this person I know had COVID. So I see it going back around. What, do, what should people just look for the normal uh, symptoms that they would for Omicron? Is there anything specific to BA5? It's an excellent question. You see symptoms very similar uh, in BA.4 and BA.5. Omicron, particularly Omicron 2.0, more of an upper airway infection. We're not seeing as much bronchitis and bronchiolitis. It's more like really significant cold symptoms. Interestingly, with BA.5, it has been noted that patients are experiencing severe sore throat, almost to the level of strep throat. So if you have a very sore throat or you're having significant sinus pain, don't assume that it's either post-nasal drip because of allergies or if you go see your doctor and they only test you for strep, make sure that they also test you for COVID because Omicron or BA.4 and 0.5 are present, presenting very similarly to strep throat. And as we discussed uh, around this same time last year, we're moving into, we're, we're uh, what, a month and a half away from flu season starting to begin. 
So it, uh, do you have the same concerns now that you had this same time last year about this new BA5 variant and flu season? Yeah, I definitely do. It will be interesting to see what variant we're on by September, October, given how quickly some of these variants are manifesting. We already know in India, there is a BA.275 that has seen an uptick in cases, particularly in places like Mumbai. So by the time we um, see COVID in September, we may be on BA.9, who knows. What's concerning to me is that people are still not approaching this from any form of public health standpoint. There is really no mask wearing. A couple of weeks here in D.C., there was the Something in the Water Festival um, around the weekend of Juneteenth. It was ridiculously crowded and not a single person had on a mask. We are just on the uh, heels of Essence Festival where it was insanely packed and very few people, at least from the social media feeds that I'm looking at, had their masks on. And so as we go into flu and what is likely COVID season, we're likely going to see, again, that dual infection presenting itself where someone has, in the middle of fighting off COVID, ends up exposed to and then developing flu. So if you're not going to wear your mask, at least make sure your immune system is boosted up and strongly consider getting vaccinated for both. What kind of things would you recognize when you say your immune system's boosted up? What kind of things can people, would you rec- recognize? I know you are, in a, you, you do specialize in obesity. I'm sure that's one of the areas. But what are some things that you think people should do to get their immune system stronger? That, and, and let me put it this way, something that most people aren't doing out there. Right. I think, well, one, you know, we hear a lot about mental health right now and stress. Uh, one of the main things that people can do is just pay attention to how stressed out they are. If your stress is at a level of five to six or higher on a regular basis, that's going to suppress your immune system. And although stress happens, there are ways in which we can manage our stress. Deep breathing exercises, just a 90, just a 90 second deep breathing exercise will help in terms of stress management. Uh, making sure that you are getting enough rest is also important. As people are out here on the grind, they're not necessarily committing to six to eight hours of sleep, and that is very imperative. And then, as you mentioned, what we do in terms of nutrition, not just in terms of obesity, but for those of us who aren't dealing with weight issues, what are you eating every single day? Are we treating food as medicine? Because it also can be uh, in the body as poison. And when we're eating foods rich in things like vitamin A, B6 and B12, vitamin C, D, E, zinc, those are the things that are going to help to boost your immune system. And it certainly doesn't help to get outside, walking, getting that good vitamin I mean, deactivated and getting yourself moving because exercise also boosts your immune system. And that sugary drink that you got ready to pick up, put it back down and go get you some water. Now we're looking at the Biden administration's response to the road. Well, the 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 uh, I'll just call it the road decision to keep it simple. Uh, And now you have uh, Biden confirming that his administration is considering declaring a public health emergency to help protect abortion cases as Republican led states move swiftly, swiftly procedure. As a physician, as a public health expert, uh, your thoughts on this issue? Yeah, I think it certainly is a Band-Aid on a very significant issue. We know that with the reversal of Roe v. Wade, pregnancy-related maternal death is going to increase by 21, at least 21%, and it's disproportionately going to impact women of color. You know, uh, President Biden pushed Health and Human Services to make um, 
abortion pills, the morning after pill, more readily available, but that does not negate what these laws dictate. There are pharmacists who are too afraid to fill prescriptions for the morning after pill because they don't want to risk going to jail or losing their jobs. So putting out a public health emergency isn't going to address the real threat, particularly in these Republican-led countries that make, or in these Republican-led states that make, and they feel like countries, given how they're dictating these laws, to make pharmacists and uh, healthcare professionals fearful, not to mention women fearful of what the consequences may be. You may make these drugs available. You may make, put out this public health emergency, but the fear has already been instilled in a good number of women and the risk to their safety is already there. They need to look at a federal level situation to fix this. It isn't going to be a temporary fix by making it a, I mean, clearly the reversal is a public health emergency, but what comes with that is only temporarily going to allow women perhaps to travel outside to a different state, but they still have to come back to their home state and suffer the consequences, whatever those may be. That's where he needs to take action. Um, you know, I used to, uh, for a short time, sold uh, health care insurance. And when I did, I had a, a, a particular client who um, was in what's called the donut hole in Medicare. At any rate, he needed to buy the insurance, pay for his own, excuse me, he needed to pay for his own medication. And what I was able to do is get the company that he had prescriptions through instead of, it was $700 a month for his prescriptions. We were able to negotiate it so he could pay, go to the drugstore and pay what the actual prescription company was paying to buy it for him. It was $60. That was the difference between that was all the rest of profit. The reason I say that Common Dreams has an art, uh, uh, article, letting Medicare negotiate drug prices could would save us nearly $290 billion. By empowering Medicare to negotiate uh, prices for prescription drugs, Congress can end the days of seniors missing life-saving medications because they cannot afford them. And my point being, and some of these drugs, literally 90% markup is from profit and higher. Your thoughts, Dr. Hancock? No, absolutely. I think what, what we really need to do is get insurance companies out of bed with Big Pharma to make these medications available and, and price effective. And one of the ways in which to do that is allowing Medicare to negotiate the prices, depending on which insurance company you have. And I'll give you an example. I had a patient who I prescribed albuterol. They came in with an asthma attack. Albuterol has historically always been covered. Prednisone has always been covered. So I put the baby on prednisone and albuterol. Mom called me crying. She said the insurance company isn't covering the prednisone. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. It's always like prednisone has been around since before I became a doctor 20 years ago. I called the pharmacy and I'm like, this doesn't make any sense because sometimes pharmacies will tell tales. And she was like, no, the insurance company is saying it won't. I called the insurance company. At 4.58, this is when this is all happening. Of course, it rings, I'm on hold, and then it turns to 5 o'clock and no one answers the phone. I ended up having to send this child to the emergency department to get pregnant zone because it wasn't covered by the insurance company. I had to fill out a prior authorization in July when, in June, the medication was covered. But because of the change in benefits and negotiations between a health insurance company and Big Pharma, now I have to fill out a prior authorization to confirm that this child needs life-saving medication. If we were to take that relationship out and allow Medicare to negotiate these prices, families wouldn't have to go through the heartache and frustration that this mother went through, and I wouldn't have to go through the time spent and the frustration that I went through, and the pharmacist for that matter, 
in helping this parent get the medications that they need, not to mention the fact that it ended up costing the insurance company more money because the mother ended up having to present to the ER. And we see these stories over and over again. I could tell you 50 billion of these stories because it happens on a regular basis. It just happened with me just last week with a patient. It makes absolutely no sense. In order for us to have reasonably priced accessible medications, not just for our seniors, but across the age spectrum, there has to be an organization and entity that allows for better price negotiation. As we get out, according to the Congressional Budget Office, the legislation that's now being considered would result in a net decrease in the unified deficit, totaling $287.6 billion between 2022 and 2031. That's a phenomenal, phenomenal number, and they and they can't seem to get it get it done. We've been speaking with Dr. Yolanda Hancock. She's a board certified pediatrician and obesity medicine specialist. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. G20 diplomats are unable to come to a consensus on Ukraine. Also, President Vladimir Zelensky has fired the Ukrainian envoy to Germany and has vowed retaliation against Russia for an alleged attack on an apartment building. Join us to discuss this. We have Mark Sloboda. Mark is a Moscow-based international relations security analyst. Mark, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Garland, Dr. Leon, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the critical hour. Deeply divided top diplomats from the world's richest and largest developing nations failed to find common ground Friday over Russia's war in Ukraine and how to deal with its global impacts, leaving prospects for future cooperation in the forum uncertain, according to the Associated Press. Mark, sounds like they're having some problems getting their act together. Yeah, I mean, this was... Uh, the writing was on the wall. Uh, within the G20, there are 10 members, uh, nine countries and the EU, which are participating in the Western's war of uh, sanctions, uh, economic war of sanctions on Russia. And there are uh, 10 members, uh, including Russia, who are not. So that's that's pretty much an, an evenly split um between uh, the members of the G20. And uh, it seems none of them wanted to get on board with the type of anti-Russian rhetoric that the West was there to deliver and uh, declined to participate in a a photo op. So it was really just um, uh, the West secreting themselves uh, in their own little camp. There was no joint photo op. There was no joint communique. Um, I, I mean, which is all that this talking shop usually really produces, uh, but this time it didn't even manage to produce that. So um, big success from the foreign minister meetings of the G20. Well, in terms of that point, is it a success for China and Russia in terms of the G20 not being as uh, as unified as Joe Biden wants to make us 
uh, believe that they are. And also uh, Lavrov walking out of the meetings twice uh, when his uh, German counterpart Baerbach spoke at the opening session um, and just before the Ukrainian minister spoke as well. So from a if, if you're looking at it from the Russian perspective, is this, I won't say victory, but is this a positive indication that the unity that Biden is talking about isn't really there? Sure. I mean, there is no unity. There was never any question of any unity. And the the new global splits between the West and the rest are painfully obvious uh, to, to anyone and everyone. Uh, so if Biden, if um, Blinken were trying to present this as some kind of moment of unity, uh, it, it certainly failed. There's there's no question about that. And out of the meeting, I mean, the host of the meeting, Indonesia, um, just signed a, uh, uh, a deal uh, with Russia to build a $22 billion uh, uh, refinery in East Java. Uh, and um, uh, besides uh, China and India, which are continuing to buy more oil, more gas, more coal from Russia. Um, uh, Brazil also announced that they were interested in Russian energy as well uh, since the, the uh, conference was over. Uh, so um, I, I, it seems that uh, while the G20 as a whole was unable to come to any unity, uh, Russia was far from isolated and managed to use bilateral meetings at the G20 uh, to, um, you know, promote their own economic interests in the face of this economic war. You know, Mark, you are in Moscow, so I'm going to ask you this. We're in Washington, D.C. We have listeners right now listening to the show right now. So I want to ask you this. In Moscow, there's sanctions. And, you know, I've certainly seen pictures in, I think it is Holland, I believe it is, wherever the, the Dutch farmers are. There are empty shelves and people freaking out, running in all directions. Kind of looks like a George Romero zombie movie. What's it look like in Russia? Is Are people freaking out? Is it kind of Sri Lanka-esque? Are people literally swimming in uh, the pool at uh, Vladimir Zelensky's uh, palace? How bad is it, Mark? We need to know. Yeah, it's really bad. I think everyone in the country has committed suicide except for me. <laughs> Point. I'm I'm the only one left in Russia at this point. No, no. I'm. It there there are really no noticeable effects. It is quite obvious that the the blowback from the sanctions is having a much bigger effect on Western, uh, in on, on European and U.S. economies than it is on Russia. Russia uh, experiencing, I would say, a mild uptick in inflation, uh, but that was uh, already. Uh, reduced uh, to to a zero further rise in sanction uh, several weeks ago. Um, the ruble is much stronger than it was before the intervention began. In fact, as a result of of this uh, economic war between capital and commodities, the ruble has gained more value against the dollar than it's had in years. Russia's energy sales are doing just fine. Uh, so much money is flowing into the Kremlin coffers because of the increased price of oil and gas and coal uh, that the Kremlin is scrambling to to find infrastructure projects, construction, you know, things to invest to get money pumped into the economy. Um, I can't go to McDonald's if I actually wanted to eat that garbage. Um, but um, there, 
all of McDonald's has simply been rebranded in Russia through a deal worked out with with uh, uh, the headquarters uh, and uh, in the U.S. and uh, the uh, local subsidiaries here to just keep selling it with new rebranding. Uh, so if you really wanted to, you can still get it. It's just not called the Big Mac anymore. Um, and um, I can't buy something from Ikea if I wanted some really bad uh, – Just I just got out of college furniture in my house, which I don't. Well, quickly uh, on the – back to the, G, uh, the G20 uh, summit and the fact that the it opened right after Boris Johnson announced his resignation, so Liz Truss – had to leave. And then also uh, Shinzo Abe was assassinated. Uh, did that have any impact on the ultimate outcome? And, and particularly Liz Truss, because we know now that she's trying to position herself to replace Boris Johnson. Yeah. So Liz Truss uh, went home early uh, from the summit uh, in order to make her own bid uh, for the new British prime minister to replace uh, Bojo. But um, I, I don't think this it, it certainly disrupted events, added to the sense of chaos. Uh, you know, this was dominating the headlines rather than the G20, both of these two events. But I don't think it actually had any change in the ultimate outcome, which is to say, there was no outcome, um, and I, I, I don't, I don't think that that if Bojo was was still politically alive and Shinzo Abe uh, had not been assassinated, that the ultimate outcome of the G twenty four minister meeting would have been any different. Uh, President Zelensky has sacked his envoy to Germany, a controversial figure to say the least. But I don't know if you're familiar with this. Uh, let me let me throw something else out to you that I think is important, Mark. Seems like there's a bit of a row between Poland and Germany over the fact that the step, the Banderistas or Banderites, whatever you want to call them at some point, massacred 100,000 Poles. And the Poles are like not thrilled about it. And the Ukrainians are like, eh, you know, Bandista was a good guy. <laughs> it's just what we do. Um, anyway, your thoughts on all of that, that, that mess, uh, Mark. Yeah. Um, first of all, there's, there's actually nothing that gets my goat more than referring to Stepan Bandera as controversial. <laughs> there's nothing controversial about Stepan Bandera. He was a Nazi collaborating Holocaust perpetrating, uh, uh, genocidal, uh, Galician fascist. And he is glorified uh, by the Maidan regime since it seized power in 2014. They've named streets after him. They name they they celebrate his birthday as a national holiday with torchlit parades of um, neo Nazis in Kiev. There's state armed and funded neo Nazi death squads. You know about a dozen of them. Uh, you know that 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 uh, worship the man as the founding father and the. Jewish descent leader uh, of the Kiev regime, Zelensky himself gave an interview where he said that um, uh, lots of Ukrainians uh, think Stefan Bandera as a hero, and that's normal. That's cool. No, no, no. Sorry, Volodymyr. It is not cool to think that a Nazi collaborator is is normal or a hero. No. No, it is. It is most certainly not. Uh, Germany responded to this latest of um, uh, scandals with the now former uh, Kiev regime ambassador, um, you know, uh, trying to deny that, uh, you know, just he was 
literally doing Holocaust denial, right? I mean, um, uh, right to the to the Germans' face, and the Germans are like, "Yeah, um, uh, maybe you should go to some remedial history remembrance classes. We can arrange." I mean, that's literally uh, what they they suggested in response to Melnick, um, and. You know, um, there is uh, a lot of uh, uh, political uproar under the covers, as it were, in Poland over the fact that they're they're in bed with a regime that that glorifies, you know, political forces, uh, you know, Nazi collaborating forces uh, in West Ukraine that collaborated with the Nazis and perpetuated a very substantial genocide uh, against the Polish inhabitants of Galicia, of Western Ukraine at the time. But that's all been kind of put on the back border for the Poles, because the one thing they and the new regime in Kiev have agreed upon, other than the fact that they, you know, should be client states of the U.S., is that they hate Russians more than they hate each other, and that's that's the unity that binds them together. And so that's why you don't hear a lot out of Poland, um, as you've got these figures like Milnik denying uh, to the Western leaders' face. That uh, you know that Stefan Bendera massacred Poles or Jews or uh, you know anyone else uh, in Western Ukraine. When you project forward to the dust settling here eventually, and Ukraine being smaller than it is now, there I've been reading things that Poland is eyeing reclaiming territory. Uh, do you have any insight into that? Yeah, I I don't think that's going to happen. I, I I don't I think that that is that is likely, um, you know, some either deliberate disinformation on Russia's part or just some some wartime rumor mongering. Poland may well move troops in, and but it's not like the Kiev regime actually has sovereignty at this point anyway. Uh, but then again, Poland itself has very limited sovereignty uh, with regards to the U.S. And as long as they're both bandwagoning there, I don't think there's going to be any problem for them. And while Polish troops may move into Western Ukraine, it will be to support a Western Ukrainian rump state rather than annexing any territory. Uh, Mark, from what I'm seeing now, um, and Poland's having some very serious financial problems, issues with um, energy and uh, and major issues with uh, Ukrainian refugees. We got about a minute and a half. Yeah, I mean, there is all sorts of economic and social blowback that is, you know, rocking Poland at the moment. But for the time being, whatever the cost, uh, the one thing that really does unite Poles together uh, on whatever po uh, political spectrum is their dislike of Russia. And that right now, that is meaning that the, the domestic political situation, the political elite can endure great costs, um, uh, you know, in the name of, of combating Russia, which is, is essentially what Poland is, is doing through a Ukrainian proxy like the rest of NATO at this point. So no immediate repercussions, although the, the butcher's bill for the blowback is getting long in the tooth. Well, you need something important to talk about when you're wandering through the forest foraging for wood. So, you know, I guess they have a conversation piece, how much they hate the Russians. We've been talking with Mark Laboda. He's a Moscow-based international relations security analyst. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. 
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. In what may be a sign of things to come for the EU, the nation of Sri Lanka has collapsed into chaos as the economic situation has spun out of control. Joining us now to discuss this, we have KJ No. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher. KJ, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. The president of Sri Lanka has announced he will step down after protesters stormed his official residence and set the prime minister's house on fire. Neither the prime minister nor the president were in the buildings at that at the time of the incident. Here's my question. Um, and certainly that's a, a horrible thing. We you know, see the people struggling, no fuel, no food, etc. My question is. Is that the eventuality for the EU as we see, you know, economic disaster looming over that major um, economic power? Uh, KJ, no. I think it's definitely a possibility. But I think it's important to note that Sri Lanka was not particularly indebted. I think if you look at the debt to GDP ratio, you know, it's probably in the 30, 40, uh, you know, uh, ranking. And so, you know, there are a lot of countries that are a lot more indebted than Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka has a few specific issues that made it a subject to this. Uh, one is one is the fact that it was a neo-colony, right? Um, you know, neo-colonialism is still the key issue. And then it had, you know, the double whammy of COVID, uh, which affected its tourism industry and its remittances. And then also, um, uh, the the U.S. NATO proxy war in Ukraine, which affected fuel and gas. And then here's the 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 other piece, which is part of the picture, is that the United States signed a status of forces agreement with Sri Lanka in 2018, uh, eventually hoping to turn Sri Lanka into a U.S. base or a staging platform because uh, it considered, you know, the 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 uh, other, it, it needed a, a closer base, a closer in the Indian Ocean. And uh, what has happened was that was strongly opposed. And so about a, a million dollars worth of NED funding was poured into Sri Lanka. And that may not seem like a lot of money, but relative to GDP, it, it is a lot. It's as if, uh, for example, uh, a foreign country had poured $15 billion dollars uh, actually, more like two billion, two or three billion dollars into the U.S. Uh, economy to fund, you know, activists. And so, I think these are all factors. We don't know what the exact situation is, but I agree with you. The kind of instability that comes from uh, a debt, uh, from being highly indebted, and from the kind of global instabilities of capitalism and of being a neo-colonial. Uh, system. You know, these are definitely problems that could affect the entire world. The United States pouring that kind of money into activism in the country was was the purpose of that to change the political dynamic so that uh, Sri Lankans would be more inclined to support the the military uh, encroachment of the United States? Or was that to actually result in where we are now and having the, uh, the, 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 the president and foreign minister resign? Well, you know, I think it's a little bit too early to tell. This has been a kind of a rolling protest since April. 
But what we do know will happen is uh, in about uh, nine days, there will be a new election. There will be some kind of coalition government, which will be constructed uh, from all the parties. And then these, uh, this new government will take on IMF austerity measures. Uh, this is how it happens. You know, the IMF encourages countries to take out loans uh, and then and then it engineers or encourages some kind of liquidity crisis. And this is not a huge debt they have, uh, but it's essentially a short-term liquidity crisis. But now that you have this liquidity crisis, the IMF comes back and demands uh, a pound of flesh. Uh, and uh, that will be the fate of uh, uh, Sri Lanka. Uh, and, uh, and, and then the U.S. will come in and it will privatize large chunks of Sri Lanka's public wealth. And then I think that the U.S. bases will be part of the um, you know, negotiating platform, which is uh, rather tragic because Sri Lanka for a very, very long time has really steered clear of the United States. It has uh, steered a kind of non-aligned path. You know, KJ, something's inter- that's interesting now. You see um, Japan, they're going along with the sanctions, and uh, the, Russia has um, just basically kicked them out of a major LNG deal, and they are scared to death that they're, um, that the gas flowing, the Russian gas flowing into their country may stop, and they may have really dramatic um, economic problems. We see the same thing happening in, in all over Europe. Meanwhile, the African leaders are going to have a summit with Moscow to figure out how they can get wheat, to figure out how they can get uh, energy, things like that, keep that going. The Brazilians, Jair Bolsonaro, for all of his, you know, uh, extremist inclinations at times, shall we say, is doing the same thing. It's like we see the leaders of the global south literally mostly saying, look— we got to look out for our people. We got to maintain stability. And what have traditionally been the wealthier Western countries, the leaders are seem to be going over the top and ignoring the impending economic destruction of, of their their societies. Your thoughts? Well, you know, I think there are many theories around this. One has to do with uh, depopulation or creating an empire of chaos. I won't go down that route, <clears throat> but what is clearly clear is that uh, the Western global elites are not that concerned about their people. It's clear that there are countries in the global South that take uh, the situation seriously. They understand that you cannot run a country without food or the equivalent of food for the industry, which is fuel. You need food and fuel, and therefore you need to have good relations with countries rather than waging war, trying to destroy them, take them apart, especially if they're your key supplier of both of the uh, uh, necessary commodities. Regarding Japan, I think it's also important to note that the last time Japan had a dramatic and massive fuel shortage, permit uh, me to catastrophize a little bit here, they went to war. Uh, and this was, you know, the attack on uh, Pearl Harbor. And uh, for me, the very, you know, kind of worrisome development is that the LDP used the assassination of Shinzo Abe to kind of pump up some kind of sympathy vote, uh, and now they own a supermajority along with other coalitions uh, in the upper house. That means they have the two-thirds vote necessary to revoke Article 9 of the Japanese peace constitution. In other words, Japan could remilitarize 
and then uh, a remilitarized Japan, which the United States has been very much in favor of because it considers them to be the useful thugs or shock troops or, you know, the Mujahideen of Asia. I think that they are, I think they haven't thought through the possibility of blowback. I'm catastrophizing here, but I'm also making some long-term projections. Japan will revoke Article 9 eventually. Japan will remilitarize. And then I think we have to, everybody should buckle in and, and duck down. Not only should I think there be concerns about Japan, but as you look at, and Garland was talking about what's happening in Europe, uh, there are other uh, Asian nations such as India and Pakistan that are dealing with serious problems related to soaring inflation, high energy costs, access to food. So what's happening in Sri Lanka could be a bellwether for other uh, similarly economically situated countries uh, in Asia. Absolutely. You know, the, the global capitalist system is inherently uh, unstable. And once you add to that uh, pandemic, you add to that a war that uh, disrupts supply chains, and then you add to that sanctions, then you are in for one, uh, you know, hell of a ride. And so I think we, I think you're right. There is a bellwether there. there each case is particular and specific, but we can also note the large uh, macroeconomic factors that are driving this crisis. And do, what do you think about the, um, you know, the growing change in order where it seems to be that there's literally going to be two systems, the Russia, China, India, BRICS, et cetera, system. And the meanwhile, the U.S. is trying to, like, put a fence around Russia and China and control everything else. Your thoughts about the changing world economic order? Well, we've had this discussion before. The U.S. wants unipolar global hegemony where it is at the top. It's the apex predator and everybody uh, else, all the other countries are paying either tribute or, or, or being psychic. That is, the U.S. is the global bully. It extorts uh, resources from everybody else. And then you have a few psychics. These are the NATO and uh, Five Eyes countries, along with their quizlings. And then everybody is paying tribute. That system is starting to become undermined. We're starting to see the beginnings of genuine um, multipolarity, as instantiated by Russia, China, and uh, the aspirations of the UN Charter. I think that is definitely a, a real possibility. And it's accelerated by the fact that uh, China and Russia are, and other Global South countries actually have viable economies, whereas the Global North economies are largely financialized, extractive, parasitic economies. And they really do need to keep the Global South under their heel otherwise they themselves will start. They cannot continue to eat bonds and uh, printed money. As we see the shift from a unipolar to a multipolar dynamic, do you see this shift also playing itself out in the politics of the UN? And could it be, could, could the UN become the, the, a, a more deliberative body uh, than it has been up to this point? You know, I, I think there's there's hope there. Uh, it's a little bit too early to tell. You know, to, to a large extent, the U.S. and uh, NATO and the G7 still hold considerable sway over the EU. And its culture and its institutions are very Western. It, it is only pro forma. 
uh, in its culture, uh, a multilateral organization. But I think that is starting to shift. I think that there is possibility there. And I think it will continue to accelerate as uh, as the, the the multiple countries and the bodies uh, of the United Nations understand that you know things are not going the way they're supposed to, and combined with the United States' complete and utter disregard for UN's institutions and UN law, uh, and instead arguing for its quote unquote uh, own version of international order that it calls the rules-based international order. I think it's in the interest of the United Nations to shift its culture and orientation. Thank you very much. We've been talking with K.J. No. K.J. is a peace activist. He's a writer and a teacher and a friend of the show. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. U.K. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss has announced her bid to replace Boris Johnson as the prime minister. Also, we discussed the line, the decline of the U.K. in recent years. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Dan Lazar. He's an investigative uh, journalist and an author of several books. Dan, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. In her piece, UK to swap out top sociopath for a different sociopath, notes from the edge of the narrative matrix, Caitlin Johnstone writes, Boris Johnson resigning would only be interesting in an alternate universe where there was some remote chance that he won't be replaced by another depraved sociopath. Dan Lazar, Boris Johnson's out the door. Could Liz Truss be the next leader of the UK? Your thoughts? Well, it, it, it's possible, I suppose. I mean, I mean, Boris Johnson was a joke, so therefore, I guess that the Liz Truss is, you know, is not much worse. Uh, Liz Truss is really a she's really an, an appalling figure. She gave a speech, uh, I think it was in uh, in May, uh, in response to the Ukraine war, which was so bellicose, so over the top. I mean, she talked about like you no, know, you know, inserting NATO into the South China Sea establishing a global reach for the North Atlantic Treaty Alliance. It would, it would no longer, it wouldn't be the North Atlantic Treaty Alliance. It would now be the worldwide Treaty Alliance. I mean, she really is a, a case of the British Tories trying to turn themselves into snarling lapdogs for the, uh, for the U.S. empire. Uh, but the only trouble is the U.S. empire is doing so poorly. It is just like, you know, it's just, descending into the depths of incoherence and incompetence. So that leaves the Tories of the lurch. It sounds as though Liz, Liz Truss is replacing Boris Johnson the same way that Joe Biden is replacing Donald Trump, and we might wind up with Donald Trump replacing uh, Joe Biden. Yeah, that, that's, well, that's right. I mean, I mean, all, I mean tr- all Biden has turned out to be is, uh, is trump light. I mean, Biden really is pursuing a, a Trumpian agenda in terms of foreign policy. In, in some ways, that actually, that's a, that's a bit unfair to Trump, because at least Trump was in favor of a rapprochement with, uh, with Russia. But, you know, 
in terms of the Persian Gulf. The U.S. is, uh, is pursuing a Trumpian policy. Uh, the U.S. is uh, ever more hostile to China. Um, and, um, and in the Ukraine, uh, Biden outdid Trump by uh, essentially sparking a war with Russia. So, uh, you know, so, I mean, I mean, Biden has just been a disaster and Liz Truss might be the same thing. I mean, she just like, you know, she just simply might take Boris Johnson's policies to an even greater extreme, leading to even greater trouble. So, Dan, when, when we look at these parallels, whose interests are being pursued? I, I, I guess the, the interests that are being pursued are, are, are U.S. imperial interests and, and British interests to the degree the, US, the, Brit, the Brits are trying to establish a role for themselves as like as the snarling lapdog for the Americans. But, um, but the trouble is that, is that U.S. imperial policy is in such deep trouble. Uh, their, you know, their, their power is visibly on the wane. And, and the whole world realizes that. That's why Biden can't get the, you know, much of the world to back up his policy uh, with regard to Russia, because they realize that American policy is self-serving, uh, that it's hypocritical, it's a double standard, it doesn't make sense. Um, so, you know, so the, 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 the G20 conference in Indonesia, as far as I could tell, was a real disaster for the U.S. Uh, and the U.S. found itself, you know, sort of like you know, back into a corner, unable to make any headway. And countries like India and Indonesia refusing, refusing to commit themselves to a pro-U.S. position and China more hostile than ever. Um, so, so things are really... Um, the U.S. is really taking a bad turn. Here's the other part of it, and I'm going to throw just the Sri Lanka part in there. You've got total collapse. People, I mean, it looks like a zombie movie. People running in all directions. God only knows what's going on. They've overrun the presidential palace. That's what it looks like when a country collapses. We see the African leaders in Moscow making a deal saying, hey, we want wheat and stuff like that. We are looking out for the interests of our citizens. For whatever reason, they don't want to look like Sri Lanka. When you look at what's happening in, uh, with the Dutch, um, and now it's starting to happen in Italy, it's starting to spread to Germany with the farmers blocking things, literally spraying animal poop on government buildings, blocking airports, things of that nature. And you bring in a Liz Truss who could give a crap about the UK, about the people and what's going on in their struggles. Is the Sri Lankan fate, is that what awaits Liz Truss and Olaf Scholz and Mario Draghi et al., Dan? I, I, I do. I mean, I, mean I, I don't want to overstate that. But I think that, that Sri Lanka is a lesson to the world, as is Lebanon, as is, as is Zambia and Africa, which is also going through a real crunch. Um, yeah, these are, these are obviously the, the real weak links in the chain. But the chain as a whole is really weak. Um, indebtedness is sky high uh, at record levels. Um, the economy is slowing. The global economy is slowing. And the central banks are applying the brakes, driving up interest rates. And that is a, a, a three-step uh, path to, to disaster. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, that, that, that mobs will be invading the White House, you know, and uh, as they did 
to Capitol Hill a year and a half ago. But um, but it does mean that um, a lot of countries could face a much bigger crunch than they expected as this if this debt bomb goes off. And it looks like the debt bomb is going off. There's a in this uh, piece by Craig Murray, uh, Boris Johnson and the UK decline. He writes in the UK, the Thatcherite dream of mass property ownership is abruptly canceled. Social mobility and meritocracy are changed from an opportunity for large scale social advancement by multitudes into hunger games. That could also, in my opinion, equate to the pursuit of the American dream that what a lot of people in this country are coming to understand is the American dream is truly a nightmare, Dan Lazar. Yes, it is. I mean, it is. Yes, it definitely is a nightmare. I mean, America is doing very poorly. Uh, It's remarkable. It's doing very poorly, even in health terms. Uh, I mean, America lost a million people to COVID, but even before that, American mortality rates were rising. Life expectancy was stagnant or even declining. Um, uh, there are a string of abuse of, of, of diseases which are really at dangerous levels. Obesity, the most uh, depression. These are some of the leading uh, examples. Uh, things like gun deaths, highway fatalities. These are all signs of a growing sense of ill health. And also the economy is uh, is floundering and the political system is in profound trouble. Uh, Americans, you know, Americans are giving up hope. The latest polls show a deeply pessimistic population, which by a factor of nine to one believes that government is incapable of turning things around. That's very dangerous when, when society reaches that point. And of course, the American people are right. I mean, government itself is is utterly dysfunctional. It stopped working, uh, and um, and you know we have a we have a, a geriatric case in the White House, you know who can who can barely complete a sentence, and he um, and he clearly has no doesn't have a clue as to how to get out of this mess. So things are really taking a bad turn in America. The American people are very worried, very downcast, and uh, I, I don't want to say a, a Sri Lanka future lies ahead, but we can't be, Americans can't be too blasé. They can't be too dismissive of the, the troubles that countries like that are going through because they, they can very easily wind themselves, find themselves and not to the similar straits. Craig Murray in uh, Consortium News and his article, Boris Johnson and the UK Decline, writes of, and this is important, the crisis of neoliberalism and how Western society reached unsustainable levels of concentration of, of capital and wealth inequality, and we can add in that of, uh, 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 of, of debt. So uh, to some extent, all of this is kind of baked into the cake of neoliberalism. When you set up a system where all the money goes to a few billionaires and all the power goes to a billion, few billionaires, this is kind of going to get here sooner or later. Uh, the only question is when. What are your thoughts on that, Dan? I, I totally agree. I mean, you have, you have an underlying productive economy, which is slowing, and you have uh, 
the central banks pouring out huge amounts of debt in order to sort of like, you know, to, to kind of, you know, spark a, a, a financial boom, which was extremely, which was highly successful, by the way, for a dozen years or longer in the wake of the 2008 financial meltdown. But eventually the, the party peters out and you're left with a hell of a hangover. Um, and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing that in Sri Lanka. But I think we're, I think the, it's settling into the rest of the world as well. Listen, they're having massive bank runs in China as we speak. Uh, the, you know, the, the banks are closing their doors. Depositors are desperate to get their money out. Um, the police are chasing them away. Um, and, and the Chinese government seems to be paralyzed as well because it also opened the door to this neoliberal speculation and is now paying an enormous price. And Craig Murray writes, Johnson is just a part of a process as the power of an empire disintegrates, so do its mores. As the UK's military, economic, and political power have collapsed, so have its political mores, both for good and for bad. Johnson is but a turd spewed to the top of the gushing sewer of British decline. That sounds a lot like Americans' lack of mores. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean first of all, yes, I mean, Johnson is a, was a fool, and he could sort of wonder, you know, I mean, how could, he, how could he rise to the top of a political system like, like that of Great Britain? And in America, I mean, Joe Biden, during the, the 2020 presidential primary, Democratic primary, was the worst candidate up there, yet he wound up getting the nomination. So how is it possible? What is this urge, you know, to self-destruction? on the part of these political systems like the British and the Americans. We've been talking with Dan Lazar. He's an investigative journalist and author of a number of books. You can find them online wherever books are sold. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. NATO is threatening world peace by instigating a proxy war with Russia and threatening China at the same time. Joining us to discuss this issue, we have John Jeter, journalist and author. John, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for having me, Garland. Washington and its allies seek either to remain hegemonic and weaken Russia and China or to erect a new uh, iron curtain around these two countries, writes Vijay Prashad. Both approaches could lead to a suicidal military conflict. John Jeter, your thoughts? No, I think I think Vijay is, is exactly right. This is a very risky stuff that the United States is um, undertaking uh, through NATO. I, I think, though, you know, the thing to understand from my vantage point is that um, there's no clear game plan right now by the United States or by NATO. They're just kind of throwing stuff against the wall to see what sticks. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is that uh, the wheels are starting to come off this thing. And they recognize both Russia and China, particularly since the war in Ukraine has started, as their likely uh, successors as the um, uh, not necessarily as the as the, as the uh, 
world superpower, but as rivals, right? So we're looking at probably a multipolar uh, uh, political economy, global political economy, as we did 30 years ago during the Cold War. And this is a threat to them. And they, I don't think the, the United States and its ruling class knows how to respond. So what they're doing is just sort of throwing things against the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, but, you know, the problem really, too, is that Russia and to a lesser extent China has been preparing for this moment for the last at least dozen years. And so they're waiting for them. Uh, and so the United States and NATO uh, is really bet uh, between a rock and a hard place. Vijay writes in his piece, NATO's Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg has said that the organization, that being NATO, will undergo the largest overhaul of its, quote, collective deterrence and defense since the Cold War, end quote. The huge disconnect there to me, John, seems to be that they're using a military response to address an economic issue. And so their their militarism is, I think, just going to exacerbate the situation and uh, and escalate uh, their downfall. It, it could. I think, though, that what and, and you hear it when you hear uh both Putin and his foreign uh, secretary Lavrov speak now, they've lost their fear. And this reminds me, uh, I'm not the biggest boxing fan, but I remember this moment. This reminds me a lot of Mike Tyson losing to Buster Douglas, his first loss as a professional boxer. Uh, because, you know, everyone else went into the ring and they were afraid. Well, Buster Douglas wasn't afraid. You know, he had his own personal reasons. His mother has just died. He just wasn't afraid. So he went in there and he beat the wheels off or beat the brakes off of, of uh, Mike Tyson. This, I think, is what's happening between or particularly Russia and the United States. They've just lost their fear. And so this militarism, while it's still risky, right, you never know. You're talking about uh, the two uh, nation states with, the, with more nuclear weapons than anyone else on Earth. So this is very risky. This is not without risk. But I do think that uh, Russia and China are prepared to call the United States bluff, that that and and that and that even more importantly, I think, again, you know, we're seeing the shift. It's gradual. I don't think it's something that we're going to see. You know, everyone is sort of within the sphere of influence of Russia or the Russian Federation and China by the end of the year. But we see this shift now, particularly in the in the developing uh, South, the global South, where you see these countries that are dealing with this real political upheaval. And that upheaval is against their own governments, right? In Argentina, we see it in South Africa, we see it in Sri Lanka. But but those but they're against those governments if you if you connect the dots. They're connect they're against their own governments because those governments are enthralled with uh you uh the neoliberal order as uh uh posited by the United States and the Western powers. So this is this is this is historic stuff, right? Like I think years from now, historians will look at this moment in time and say that was the moment when things shifted in the world order. Let me ask you about something. It isn't well, isn't discussed and much, and I don't know if it's appropriate. You know, if this is of consequential or not. There's a racial dynamic to this conflict, and what I mean is, and maybe I mean I'm not saying intentional, but the. 
browner Muslim countries, you know, the Muslim countries where the people are certainly browner than they are in Europe, Africa, where they're the darkest of all, uh, uh, you know, um, South America, Latin America, again, brown people, Asia, you're looking at people who are yellow, red, brown, things of that nature. And then when you look at what Joe Biden calls the, you know, the world that supports him, when you look at the U.S.'s system of allies, it's a very, very white group. And there is seems to me um, to be a color dynamic here. I'm not saying there's anything intentional or anything like that. I'm just throwing it out there. Do you make anything of that? Oh, I think that's exactly right. I think I think this is basically what we're seeing is a uh, a continuation of the uh, um, the factors that led up to World War One, where we have basically Europe, uh, Europeans, European settler nations, basically vying for control of the global South in particular, in other words, to to maintain or to extend colonies. I think this is the exact same thing. I don't think that Russia or China are colonial powers, right, or, or, or imperial powers, but still, this is a battle for the resources of the global South. Uh, uh, I, and I think within that too, you know, because the global South in many ways, particularly uh, Africa, but also I think Latin America and, and Asia to a lesser extent, are trying to sort of figure out who they are. So separate from um, this global political arrangement, they're trying to sort of figure out who they are and what that means. And so, you know, in some ways, they're uh, uh, they're going through the same identity crisis. They're trying to figure out, well, who do we who do we sort of uh, cast our lot with? And I think you're seeing increasingly, um, if, if you look at the African countries, uh, uh, the 54 countries within uh, Africa on the African continent, they're saying, well, you know. The United States doesn't look too good, doesn't look too promising. And they're, you know, they're not necessarily sort of uh, uh, going uh, full blast with Russia. But you see this sort of indecisiveness and this sort of, you know, kind of waiting to see which way the wind is blowing. So, you know, very few, I think only maybe four African countries have actually uh, in, uh, uh, denounced uh, Russia and its invasion of Ukraine. So, yeah, I, I think there's a definitely, I mean, I think there's a racial dynamic just in almost everything, right? Because that's how we sort of, uh, that's how the West in particular has managed to uh, divide the working class and put it against each other so that so that we're, we don't sort of join up and fight against them. And the best example of that, if I can say very quickly, Garland, the best example of that I think is Argentina, right? Which is right now in the streets demanding that the United St- that the that Argentina cease payments to the IMF until the, at least until this um, uh, their, their their problems with inflation, their economic problems are over, right? And you know, I don't think it's coincidence that Argentina is a country that is ninety seven percent white, and so they understand the enemy is uh, neoliberalism, uh, the West, and these economic this economic uh, austerity that has been imposed upon them really for thirty years now. You know, uh, John, you you mentioned that historians or or people will look back at this moment and say that this was the beginning of the shift. And I was listening to you and it came to my mind, I think we might have to go back to the invasion of Iraq and that the invasion of Iraq was the beginning. The U.S. lost there. The U.S. then went into Afghanistan, lost there. And it's just been, I don't know, we could go back to Vietnam, but I'm looking. I'm looking at. I'm looking at at Iraq. Depending on how long of a timeline you want to go back to, as as being the 
the beginning of the slide. Yeah, no, you're right. There, it's, it's been a series of shifts that have been that have really accelerated over the last uh, 20, 22 years. I think you're right. I think I think Iraq was a was a shift. I think uh, uh, I think I think uh, I think Obama was a shift. Right. Uh, kind of a desperate pitch by the neoliberal order to maintain uh, some relevance to make to sort of uh, sell this very militarized uh, colonial uh, scheme to the public using a black face. I think Libya was a very big turning point because that uh, that showed the United States hand to Russia and China. They realized, oh, this is the game they're playing. So yeah, I think you're right. There there have been several. Tipping points, I think, uh, if, if that's possible. Uh, I might, I might say though that this is what's the what's the phrase they commonly use in TV. This is the moment when the United States jumped the shark, though, right? But it just, mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. think it, I don't think it has any credibility now with with really anyone else in the world, right? I mean, people, I, I think governments still pay it polite respect because, of course, it is still the, the world power. We got more guns than anybody. Uh, and clearly, we're willing to use them. Uh, so, so there's still that sort of you know begrudging respect. But I think most people in the world now, and, and you see this like, again with this turmoil that the world is in. You know, I mean, uh, 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 again, South Africa, Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka. I saw pictures of people swimming in the swimming pool at the presidential palace. I mean, just gleefully. I mean, something has shifted here. You know, uh, in a way that I've not. I don't recall in recent memory. So, uh, but yeah, you're right. Let me ask you this, you know, in light of that. Yes, it's uh, Sri Lanka has clearly collapsed into chaos. When we look at what's happening in Europe, is there the potential for a similar collapse? If we look at what's happening, the Dutch right now, the farmers are, you know, they've got tractors in the street blocking things. It's That's starting to spread to Italy. It's starting to spread to Germany. There is a potential now that Germany could lose energy from Russia, which would wipe out their economy. You know, people never think that those kinds of things could happen in Europe, that those things could happen in the U.S., but I don't I don't see that happening in the U- U.S. The U.S. can create, the, you know, grow their own food and, and, and create their own energy. Europe can't. Is Europe truly in danger of a significant economical collapse, excuse me, economic collapse where they see the kind of chaos that a Sri Lanka is, a Shri- Sri Lanka is experiencing? I, I think they are. I think especially when you consider that Germany, which is the biggest economy in, in Europe, and they're talking about you know they're they're talking about rationing energy right now, right? They they I, I, which I don't I don't understand how they couldn't foresee that these sanctions would hurt them in terms of the energy that they buy forty percent I believe of their energy they buy from Russia. So I see real political turmoil as a result of the economic turmoil. Of course, the social scientists always tell us that economic turmoil leads to political turmoil or economic crises lead to political crises. And I see that happening in real time right now, beginning with Germany, which is talking about reverting back to coal, which is a real issue for Germans who are much more astute when it comes to the environment. Uh, They feel like that's backpedaling from the progress that they've made in their transition from uh, coal to uh, more sustainable forms of energy. You see the the left rising in France, also the right, but the left has has basically uh, seized power, at least, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, hamstrung Macron's government um, by taking uh, a majority of seats in Parliament. Uh, you see, of course, what's happening in London with uh, in England with uh, uh, Boris Johnson being ousted. I don't know who's going to take his place. And Labour, uh, much like the Democratic Party of the United States, is not much better than the Tories. But still, I see this political upheaval. And I'll say this too: I do think that the United States uh, that kind of up that kind of upheaval is. Uh, perhaps a little bit more in the distance because uh, let's let's face it, um, we have been so propagandized in the United States that we're not really. I don't think we really understand the issues very well, like like much of the rest of the world does. I still think it's very much possible, though. You know, when people's children are hungry, things change very quickly, and I think that is uh, still a very real possibility. I think we're going to find out later this month that we are in a recession, and I think there's a good chance this recession could be. Uh, a, a very deep one. Do you think granting Obama the Nobel Prize so early in his administration was part of that grand fiction and lie? I think I think granting I think granting Obama a Nobel Prize at any point in his lifetime <laughs> is, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> is a travesty. <laughs> You're listening to we've been talking with John Jeter. He's a journalist and author. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Josep Burrell, the EU's top diplomat, has admitted that NATO is losing the information war worldwide. Also, we discuss the latest news on the blockade of Kaliningrad. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Ray McGovern. He's a former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. Ray, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks, Many G20 diplomats are more concerned with their own national interest than punishing Russia with economic sanctions for attacking Ukraine, EU foreign policy chief Joseph Burrell has said. Imagine that. He claimed the West was being accused of double standards and had failed to win a battle of narratives in relation to Ukraine. Ray McGovern, help us out. What's this mean? Well, Garland, I, I was just at work on a piece that I think the title will be uh, The Blinkens Leading the Blind. Um, <laughs> now I think I'm going to add Burrell. The Blinkens and Burrell Leading the Other Blind. Um, you know, nations tend to pursue their own special interests. Um, they don't make enemies gratuitously for, uh, for reasons that NATO would explain to them. And, you know, here is uh, Burrell lamenting that, oh, these these people, uh, these other people, uh, uh, they're more concerned about, quote, the consequences about the war for themselves. Wow, imagine that. Then he talks about the, the competing narratives. Of course, you know, it's not a matter of uh, losing the competing narrative to Russian propaganda. And it's not a case of defeating Russian lies. It's a case of losing on the battlefield. And that's what Vladimir Putin and Lavrov have warned about. Putin, as recently as three days ago, saying, you know, the West wants to win this war 
uh, on, in Ukraine on the battlefield, let them try. And that's why it's a real tough narrative because the West cannot win this war. And uh, the sooner they come to realize that and take the blinders off the Blinkens and the Burrells, um, the sooner uh, Ukrainian people can have some respite from this constant warfare. You know, there's a lot about Blinken that people don't realize, but I'll just mention one other thing, and that is the Iraq war, when the US and the UK uh, went into attacked Iraq without any real uh, legitimate reason. Now, I've always said that there were three reasons that could be uh, described by the acronym OIL, O for oil, <laughs> I for Israel, and L for the logistics base. So the U.S. coveted some military bases there in Iraq. Now, the O for oil was all important. The O, I'm sorry, the I for Israel was something that no one would mention, but it was Israel as the main factor, I think even more than the military bases or the O for oil that got us in there. And what kind of role did Blinken play in that? Now, this is 20 years ago, you know, people forget. Well, he was Joe Biden's uh, staff director on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He wouldn't let people like Scott Ritter, who knew what was up there, who knew, for example, there were no weapons of mass destruction, that they had all been destroyed. He wouldn't let them testify. Why? Well, Blinken, Blinken is an arch a neocon. What does that mean? A neocon has real trouble distinguishing between the interests of the United States on the one hand and the interests of Israel on the other. And I mention this partly because there they go, tootling off to Israel and other parts of the Middle East. He leading Biden by the nose. It's really, really getting complicated. And if we, we leave things up to Blinken, we're all in deep trouble. Blinken and Barrell themselves, and you know, include all the other lemmings who happen to be uh, under uh, Blinken's spell and walking blindly to disaster. So Burrell also says that the G20 ministers from the global south agreed in principle with the goal of protecting Ukraine's territorial integrity, but declined to support the Western response. Well, it's not only the ministers from the global South, it's over a hundred leaders in African nations that are declining to support the Western response. And this has, to your earlier point, a lot less to do with a narrative and a whole lot more to do with reality. They are looking at the long-term implications that this is going to have on their economies, on their abilities to provide for their citizens, and it's not in their best interest to back the United States play. Yes, and I noticed that in November or December, uh, under Kremlin Aegis, there will be a gathering of African states. Um, they have been up in Moscow uh, probing, uh, probing this notion. They, too, are turning their back on the, well, let's call it what it is. It's the Lily White West against people of color, the darkest in Africa, yellow, China, you get all kinds of blends in Russia and in the rest of, uh, of Asia. So 
the world is divided here in a bipolar way, and I use that term <laughs> in both senses of the word, uh, with the Lily White West, who used to have domain over most of the world, but no longer does and doesn't realize that it no longer does. And the rest of the world, who happen to be almost, well, mostly people of color, this is no good. Uh, this can only lead to what the Chinese used to call in their vernacular, this would lead to a no good end. Ray, I want to throw this out at you. I'm throwing this out at a lot of people today and thoughts, and that is the issue of Sri Lanka. You know, we're seeing now pictures of, you know, chaos and mayhem. Uh, you know, pandemonium, as they used to, as Hulk Hogan used to say in WWF, in a country that has collapsed. I look at that, the first part of our discussion where we're talking about, hey, you know, Europe, things aren't looking so good for the future of Europe. Could that be the future of Europe we're looking at as the Dutch farmers are pretty much freaking out? And and again, the people in Africa saying, hey, we're looking at Sri Lanka. The leaders are there saying, we don't want to end up like that. We're going to do what we need to make sure our, as best we can to make sure our people have food and the basic necessities. So take this, what's happening in Sri Lanka, through that lens and add it to this conversation. Well, I think the people in Sri Lanka are really uh, obsessed with the notion that they've been ruled uh, capriciously and unjustly for many years. Uh, it's hard for me to dissect whether this is a sui generis type of thing or whether it's a broader kind of movement. Uh, suffice it to say that the Indians are right there. Uh, they are able and willing to suppress any real danger to India, which is all important, of course. And, you know, this thing will work itself out, whether it's part of a, a larger unrest, it probably is, but we won't know that until we see further demonstrations of this kind, where, as I understand, the government and the, the heads of government have had to flee because their homes and their offices have been occupied by the protesters. Staying along that same line, uh, as Garland is talking about or asking the question about could this well, spill over into Europe, I think the other question is, could this spill over into India and could this also spill over into Pakistan? Because a lot of the fundamental issues that are impacting Sri Lanka are impacting the world, such as inflation, high energy costs, and access to food. And so one has to wonder, uh, could, uh, could Sri Lanka be the bellwether or the bell cow for India and Pakistan? Well, that's true. Uh, in other words, we have to kind of see how how the Indians react. I would say this, that Pakistan and India have shown themselves very wary of joining the NATO brigade, so to speak, the NATO narrative, if you want to quote Burrell, uh, on Ukraine. Uh, they don't see it that way. And they have taken positive measures uh, to to buy more oil, to buy more wheat from, from Russia. Uh, it's not, uh, it's really not a neutral stance that they have adopted. So they have a lot, uh, a lot at stake here. And they're going to try to keep things uh, from reaching the boiling point. One way of doing this is buying, uh, buying the kinds of things they need from Russia. And this, of course, strengthens the Russian hand as well. Uh, Pakistan has a lot of resentment. I mean, the people, the educated people know there that, that the military still reigns supreme. 
And that, you know, whenever uh, some upstart prime minister gets out of hand, whoops, there's a coup. And there was the equivalent of a coup just about a month ago. Uh, there are more people in Pakistan that resent that kind of thing now than ever before. Speaking of boiling points, the president of Russia, the presidents of Russia and Belarus, Vladimir Putin and Alexander Lukashenko, discussed a possible joint response to the blockade of transit to Kaliningrad by Lithuania, the Kremlin reported today. That is a very important issue and a very dangerous issue. Your thoughts on the Kaliningrad uh, saga, Ray McGovern? Yeah, it's... Uh I don't know if it's the, the kind of boiling point that we were talking about. Uh, I think the, the Russians have decided that uh, the Lithuanian thing needs to be responded to in a low-key kind of tit-for-tat way. Uh, the latest threat is that uh, the Russians would prohibit the transit of all kinds of goods uh, from uh, Kaliningrad to other places. The Russians even saying, well, this is OK if we, if we if we did that kind of blockade on rail and road. That would increase uh, the it would decrease the unemployment rates of our of our uh, dock workers there in Kaliningrad. Now I think the thing will be uh, can kind of uh, worked out in a way that uh, uh, I think even the EU would prefer. You see, Lithuania does these things on its own. There's no indication that they even thought to check with either the EU or with the US. So what's that, what's that mean? Well, that means that if a country like Lithuania doesn't even think to give Tony Blinken, our Secretary of State, a heads up, uh, they feel they have carte blanche to do just about everything uh, to include poking the Russian bear in the eye. Now, Blinken, I just say one more time, he's clueless, okay? Uh, I mean, this is almost funny, but I'm going to add this because it came in yesterday. The State Department is offering a $10 million reward for info on foreign election interference. Whoa. Well, I'm, I'm wondering if, uh, if the, what, the Robbie Mook, the uh, <laughs> campaign guy for whether he's, you know, run to the State Department to collect this $10 million and say, you know, I have sworn testimony here that it was Hillary. We could have got sick. Yeah, Hillary approved this. So, hey, where's my $10 million? <laughs> so, is Blinken so out of touch with what's going on in this country, so misinformed or underinformed, that he thinks that his effete elite reputation and and credentials, academic or otherwise, can substitute for the real world? Well, I think he does. And we've seen that before because it was the same kind of crowd that led us into Vietnam and kept us there, even though they knew it was a fool's errand. I'm talking about, among them, um, the former dean of Yale. What's his name? Mick something. Ray, so when we look at Lithuania's actions, is this further evidence that Russia is not going to just be baited into a response, that they are calculated and uh, their actions are calculated and they're going to do what's in their best interest when it's time for them to do so? We've got 45 seconds. 
In my view, that's exactly correct. They, they actually said that this will be a response that we have to think about and that it will be proportional to the offense. So there are many levers that Russia has with respect to Lithuania. <laughs> and the notion that Russia would invade Lithuania, Latvia, or Estonia boggles the mind. I've been there. <laughs> I've seen them. Why would the Russians want to take back those three three countries? I, I just, it boggles the imagination. And for Bush, or not Bush, but Biden to keep saying that the Russians want to go farther than Ukraine, who's telling him that? Probably the blind Blinken. We've been talking with Ray McGovern, former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. You're back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Nils Melzer has written a book about the persecution of Julian Assange. Also, journalist John Pilger argues that Julian Assange will die if he is extradited to the United States. Joining us to discuss this matter, we have Steve Poikin, and Steve's the National Organizer for Action for Assange. Steve, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you very much. Good to be here. The Trial of Julian Assange, A Story of Persecution by Nils Milzerner, is a highly readable, newly released book. It offers a wealth of information on the ongoing persecution and torture of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. The book is as invaluable for those who have supported Assange from the outset as it is for those skeptical of his fear of extradition to the United States or influenced by the prolonged character assassination campaign against him. And that can be found at the Orinoco Tribune as written by Kamala Emanuel. Your thoughts, Steve Poikinen? Uh, I can't recommend Nils's book enough. Everybody should be aware of it. It's a systemic, clinical, step-by-step debunking of every smear that has been hurled against him, with him being Julian Assange, with documentation, with translation from a reluctant, biased in the favor of the state from the onset third party. Uh, the, I would be very hard-pressed to to see someone walking away from reading that with anything approaching an open mind and not immediately recognizing the myriad dangers that the U.S., the U.K., Australia, Sweden, and Ecuador have posed to journalism and free speech globally. Meltzer begins with a mea culpa, uh, basically saying that even though he had been approached to help uh, the Assange campaign, that he had unwittingly fallen for the very smear campaign that has been part of the process of demonizing and destroying Assange. That, first of all, to me, is an incredibly honest uh, admission And I think it also shows the power of the dominant narrative. Yeah, it's well, it's a a testament to reliance on institutions 
reliance on the the overarching tenets of academia and area specific professionalism in the first place where you don't speak outside of your field and this was a legal thing and a this was a, an espionage thing and Nils Melzer doesn't necessarily deal with that particular end of it he didn't want to see be seen uh in his position at the UN as like speaking out of turn and the narrative works. If all you're exposed to largely uh, are people who are repeating the CIA talking points or the, the home office talking points about what's going on with Julian Assange, that's, that's your peer group. You usually don't necessarily question them. And if you're someone as smart as Nils Melzer is, these are also a lot of the smartest people that you know. So that reinforcement makes it way less likely for you to question it. It took two and a half, three years of pressure before Melzer even looked at it. I'm very glad he did. Uh, you know, and I find this, there's a, um, a documentary called the Magnitsky Act Behind the Scenes that Andre Nekrasov did about um, Bill Browder and the, and, and the Magnitsky Act. And very early when I started looking into that, one of the things that impressed me was that Andre had believed Browder and set out to make a documentary to prove what Bill Browder was saying was true, and as he reviewed the data, he realized that it was a fraud. That, I found that interesting. In the same way, Nils, Nils Melzer says, basically says, you know, when he started, he had no inclination to believe that there was anything wrong with what was going on with um, Julian Assange, and that through his investigation, he determined, well, he is being tortured. And for God's sake, this man did nothing wrong. He's a publisher. And I think it's a very, that's very powerful. That's a very powerful dynamic outside of just that the information is in, in this book is, is, is strong and accurate. The fact that you had a person who was truly non-biased for, even more so than being non-biased, because he believed the fraudulent narratives put forth about uh, uh, Assange and debunked them to himself. Your thoughts? Well, he, he said in multiple interviews uh, for about a year straight after he had published the uh, the report uh, about his interview with the other two physicians that examined Julian and Belmarsh, um, that the, he had said out loud, I thought that if he was in there, that he must have done something. There had to be something. There had to be, you know, elements of truth to it. Otherwise, that would mean that multiple world governments had colluded to target and, and get rid of a journalist and publisher who had won awards based solely on the fact that he printed information they didn't like. And lo and behold, that's what he reluctantly and to his own horror uncovered, uh, for which he was smeared for which he was censored, uh, he tried, you know, went on multiple tours with zero publicity from any of the organizations that normally get out in front of the camera and have a shoving contest to see who can hog for the most minutes to take credit for a U.N. rapporteur on torture coming to speak. None of that happened. And in uh, South China Morning Post, John Pilger has a piece, Julian Assange Will Die if extradited to the U.S. And very, very uh, important and powerful piece that, again, if he's brought here, basically he'll never be heard from again. 
There's nobody better than John Pilger. There really isn't. Uh, he he's he's just incredible, um, and he's correct for multiple reasons. One of which, the U.S. and the U.K. as the U.K.'s government is collapsing, as there's zero legitimacy to it whatsoever, seem to be hellbent on going forward with the extradition of Julian Assange. Seem to be playing suicide chicken because in the extradition hearing itself, it was determined by multiple medical experts and the judge that Julian Assange was determined, capable, and very, very, very willing to take his own life if he was going to be extradited. Uh, If they can somehow safeguard that from happening, the assurances that are the pretense for the extradition in the first place have zero conditions and zero words regarding his pretrial detention in Alexandria. It's all about ADX Florence and whether or not he's going to be under Sam's there. One of the things in this article about uh, John Pilger's statement, uh, one, one of the, uh, an interesting um, sentence, Assange's supporters say the charges are politically motivated and that he would be unable to get a fair trial in the U.S. Here's the evidence. We know for a fact that the prosecution spied on the, the defendant and his attorneys. There is no court in America where if you spy on the if the prosecution spies on the defense and snoops into the defense's uh, case and to see what they're doing and how they're going to defend themselves. There's no place that does not get thrown out of court. But I think we all know it won't get thrown out of court because this isn't really a court. Your thoughts, Steve? Well, in fact, Steve, before before you respond to that, let me add to that, Garland, not only spying and snooping, but there were discussions about assassination. Yeah, we're we're dealing with an entirely new breed of kangaroos. (laughs) Wallabies. These are wallabies. (laughs) Now, in in this era, uh, if something doesn't make sense, you just go ahead and say it's reality now and say that you set a legal precedent. This is brand new. Judge Vanessa Baratzer in uh, January of 2021 during the, the final ruling on extradition, I did a debunked CNN article as to justification as to why it was okay for Mike Pompeo to order the spying of meetings between uh, Julian's attorneys and himself. The, it's yeah, all it's reality doesn't matter. Legal precedent doesn't matter. Law doesn't matter. You just say you're setting a new precedent now and people go, oh, OK, well, they're smart and they have a wig on. They must know what they're doing. There's also a statement uh, in here that if Julian is extradited, I think it will effectively end real independent investigative journalism, which is actually the point of this whole persecution. Without a doubt, uh, the the Espionage Act charges alone are enough to ward off most future investigative journalists. But the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act charge uh, is the one that makes source protection or advocacy of anonymity online a federal crime, an Espionage Act violation. Um, in an, or a, sorry, not an espionage act violation, but it's a federal crime in and of itself with a minimum 10-year sentence. Everything that is important for the entire journalist toolkit, along with Julian Assange's head, is in a chopping block now. 
and it's not going to come through the legal system to where anyone's going to put a, a stop to the axe coming down. The other part of it is I think that's important, and that is if you're anywhere in the U.S.'s sphere of influence or in a country that they can um, coerce, because the other big part of this is he's being charged with violating U.S. law, but not in the U.S. So the argument now is that the U.S. Is, uh, has extrajudicial extra authority and they can reach anywhere around the world and say, you violated our law. We're the kings of the world. You got to come here and be tried. Steve. And every other authoritarian regime on the planet gets to do the same thing and go, well, you guys did it. I don't. What, what do you want from us? We, it's the old uh, Just Say No commercial where the kid's going, I learned by watching you. The, that's the situation that we've created in terms of the, the kidnapping, torture, and quote-unquote legal assassination of journalists. And I'm glad you said that because that could very well be Mohammed bin Salman's reaction to his murdering uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Well, the U.S. did it. How dare you point a finger at me? Yeah, we. I mean, we've seen other other uh, head choppers of other countries do this. We there was a, a 60 Minutes interview with uh, someone for the leader of Uzbekistan who has been brutal to his own, or sorry, it was a BBC interview, um, where he pointed it out. What are, you, what are you talking to me for? You have Julian Assange in your dungeon. I don't know. <laughs> you, you're going to have to take a look, long look in the mirror before you talk to me about how I treat anyone who picks up a pen in my country. And the woman had no idea it was coming, and she had no idea what to say to it, because there is no answer to that other than, oh, We've been listening to Steve Porkinen. He's a national organizer for action for Assange. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of half of myself, on behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe, peace and blessings. We are out. 